Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder away on assignment. Uh, and welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, around the world on the Ruth Chavez on National News slash radio. And wow, what a week it's been. Was tempted to take off for the nine days and, uh, you know, take it. But it's just it's just been too much, uh, too much information. Too much commentary, too much provoking, at least my need, I guess, to get it off my chest, as it were. Uh, I mean, we have some mini wars going on, and not least of which, I mean, so much has gone on since last week with the appointment of Anthony Scaramucci, or the Mooch, uh, a New York native, a Long Islander uh, from Manhasset, and... As White House Communications Director, which prompted the uh, departure of Sean Spicer, the famous or infamous Sean Spicer, who we have grown to love and adore and think of as a, well, unfortunately, got a little bit of a pinata doll uh, over the first six months of the Trump administration. So we've had our first kind of major casualty of the Trump White House, and it seems as if, and you know, just take this off the top, it seems as if uh, Scaramucci, who is known to be close to the president, although he did not support Trump initially, and in fact, he actually is a, has a history of supporting Democrats, uh, was when he became a Republican for the 2016 cycle, supported several other Republicans, and not only that, called President Trump a hack or a political hack. At the time, he since removed those tweets and said, well, that I, people are entitled to change their mind. I agree. People are entitled to change their mind. And I've changed my mind here on this show. I've changed my mind about different things. And I think people should be able to change their mind. I think, however, at the same time, they have to be able to be responsible for things they've said in the past and to explain why they've changed their mind. You can't just say, well, let me erase my history. But we'll get into that in a couple seconds. I want to start with a couple things. The war, the political war is going on. I mean, Anthony Scaramucci comes in and he is immediately at war with Reince Priebus, the White House Chief of Staff. It's unclear who reports the who, who is higher than who, and he immediately goes after him in a uh, tweet storm uh, that uh, seems to be de rigueur for this administration, goes after him to say that Reince Priebus is responsible for the leaking of damaging information or... I guess, about his financial disclosures of information about Scaramucci. And now immediately you have this huge blow up that's going on, which cannot be good. And let me just say, I know there's entertainment value in this, but this cannot be good for the president's agenda, for the agenda. When the White House is weak, and when the White House is in disarray, and when the top people in the White House are fighting with each other, that doesn't help healthcare get passed. That doesn't help tax reform get passed. That doesn't help infrastructure. That doesn't help foreign policy. That doesn't help crisis management. It just doesn't. And I know we're doing things differently here, but it doesn't help. But we'll go back to that. The other war that's going on, obviously, is the president's war against Jeff Sessions, his own attorney general. And the public shaming of him, it's very clear the president is displeased. Actually, it's been said directly he's displeased with Jeff Sessions with regard to his recusal in the Russia investigation, which led to the appointment of a special prosecutor. I would posit that the special prosecutor came about not because of Jeff 
Sessions' recusal came about because, uh, almost directly, because the president fired FBI Director Jim Comey. Good decision, bad decision. The problem was that the president said himself, I fired James Comey because of Russia. Jeff Sessions couldn't participate in that investigation because he had was part of the campaign and had met with the Russians, if that's what you're investigating. The manual says, and he's a lawyer, and this is a legal issue, you must recuse yourself. President didn't like that. His conception of the attorney general is clearly very different. I guess of his cabinet members, the generals, those who serve in government, swear oath and allegiance to the Constitution. And I think the president feels that some that their first responsibility is to him. However, recusal, and I'm not an attorney, recusal is a legal term that you should recuse yourself if there is a potential for the con- for a conflict or an appearance of conflict. And in this case, there was clearly a conflict. And Jeff Sessions knew it. The whole world knows it. The entire Washington knows it. Even the Republicans know it. And the president is obviously upset about it. There are those in the White House who have tried to explain it. But it stands as it is. Jeff Sessions did the right thing, even if you disagree with him politically. Now we have this absurd situation where Democrats and liberals are running to Jeff Sessions' defense in addition to Republicans. I think another political miscalculation here and I don't know who was who has been giving him the advice or giving the president the advice on this, if anyone, to escalate this uh, this battle against Jeff Sessions, his own attorney general. But it's not a battle he's likely to win. Yes, he can fire Jeff Sessions. Yes, he can probably get him to resign. But who is he going to get? And Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, who would have to hold the hearings in order to have a Jeff Sessions replacement for Attorney General, has basically said, I am not going to. It's not going to happen. Remember, these are Jeff Sessions' old colleagues in the United States Senate. They like him, even if he was well to the right of many in the chamber. Senators have a tendency to stick together. They have a tendency to be collegial, and they don't like to see one of their own particularly for something as petty or seemingly petty as has been as he has been accused of thrown under the bus and not just thrown under the bus as i said last week but run over several times after uh, lying wounded on the floor and that is essentially what the president has been trying to do it is somewhat nonsensical it just doesn't make political sense. I'm only here to talk about the politics, folks. I'm not here to judge right or wrong. I'm just here as an observer of somebody who's been involved in politics for so many years to say, this is just head-scratching. And I know the president has a way of communicating, and I know the president has done it differently than everybody else, and I know he wants to be disruptive, and I know that's the plan here. But some of this just doesn't make sense. Some of it is just continuing wounding. The one thing that I continue to come back on is, you know, perhaps there is a plan because all we talk about are some of these events that go on in the course of the week over and over and over. And it's kind of distracting from pretty much everything else or the fact that stuff isn't getting done. I don't know. I mean, maybe a lot of people aren't paying attention to the fact that legislation isn't passing or that healthcare isn't passing, that there's no tax reform plan yet, that there's no infrastructure plan, that foreign policy is kind of iffy, that there's a rush that the president got schooled, so at least it seems that way, by Vladimir Putin on Russia. Um, you know, the Syrian ceasefire, which which Israel was against and others were against and the like. The whole Qatar mess that's going on between Saudi Arabia and Qatar seems to be a profound misunderstanding uh, and Qatar being one of our allies. But over and over, I'm just 
kind of amazed by the self-inflicted wounds that keep coming on and on. And you almost think that just, well, you know, they're just throwing the dice and seeing what happens. And I want to get to it later because a couple things I would talk about as far as the rollout or of the tr- of transgender ban, essentially, which just was uh, as imperfectly rolled out, and I'll use that as a nice term, as any policy I've ever seen. Uh, it just did not get you know, people, the right people weren't consulted. It's unclear as to who's being affected. And it was just rolled out via tweet, as the president likes to do. But the other wars that are going on, I've talked about that. The other war going on of noteworthy in New York is the escalating war between Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo over the transportation system, specifically over the subways and who's responsible for getting the subways in a state of good repair. And this seems to go on and on and on. Uh, certainly been escalated this week. Bill de Blasio, the mayor, finally rode the subways then complained about it. The state then came back and said, well, you know, time to ante up, time to pay time to pay for it. In reality, New York City actually owns the subway system. The MTA just operates it. Uh, de Blasio didn't like that. And it's been a brewing war. I mean, one thing I think de Blasio has seen is that the subway or the transportation problems and the subway problems in particular, people are actually hurting Andrew Cuomo politically. Latest polling actually has him in the downstate MTA region having suffered uh, double-digit declines in his approval ratings. And most people are actually blaming Cuomo for the state of the transportation system, probably rightly so, given the fact that the MTA actually is a state agency. And the underinvestment and lack of attention that he's given the regular order of maintenance on and getting the subway into good repair, as opposed to big ticket project like the Second Avenue subway, and I'm sure these and these are definitely needed projects. Expansion of the system is important, but Bill De Blasio sees an opening here on an issue he can finally infix, flick some pain on his uh, political enemy Cuomo, and he's taking that opportunity. Okay, the two items I wanted to get to off the bat, and I know we're already in, and this is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Your host Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder being away. Two items of interest to the Jewish community, which I think were incredible. Incredible this week when I when I uh, come when it comes down to it. Uh, number one, and we'll start with the one that's more universal, if you will. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat of New York, one time was a moderate upstate congresswoman, and who had very moderate positions, goes to a town hall meeting in the Bronx this past weekend. And reminder, what's going on at the time, a Jewish family in uh, in Israel had been murdered at their Shabbos table in Chalamish. An absolute incredible tragedy. And Joe Brand has asked an Israel question, and uh, this was obviously, this was a staged question, uh, as, as, uh, as was reported. And... Uh, she promised, she talked about two things, which I think are, are should be incredible, which you probably haven't seen from a New York politician or at least a U.S. senator willing to be so strident in their essential condemnation or um, distance, the distance they want to put between themselves and Israel. And uh, Gillibrand says that I don't believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu has a vision for peace that uh, and which 
you think about it, I mean, that is kind of the narrative. There's two things in that. Number one is separating Israel from, you know, the government of Israel as if they're two separate entities. Uh, and the other one is just to say, at the same time that a Jewish family was murdered at their Shabbos table for the, in retaliation, if you will, for security enhancements at the Har Habayis, okay, at the, at the Temple Mount, that they put in metal detectors, which would be the most common sense thing. But we'll we'll get you know we can get away from the those politics if you will. Um, they were murdered in cold blood at sitting at the Shabbos table. No reference to that whatsoever. But you know she uh, and and did this to great applause. Now maybe politicians like the great applause, so they say outlandish things. I am concerned that Prime Minister Netanyahu does not have a plan for peace and doesn't have a vision for peace. Well, if the vision of the Palestinians is to murder families at in cold blood, then uh, perhaps that needs to be mentioned as well. But instead, uh, her she put the onus, of course, on Prime Minister Netanyahu as if, you know, oh, I love Israel, I'm pro-Israel, but I don't agree with Bibi. That's always a constant foil amongst uh, J-Streeters, if you will. And I'm concerned that we have a and we have a U.S. senator from the most uh, involved, for the most, the largest, the most robust Jewish community in the country, uh, if not the world, and who is essentially kind of going and buying the anti-Israel narrative. It's unthinkable if you think back even 10 years that a U.S. senator, somebody in that type of position of power and influence, yes, she's a Democrat, yes, she doesn't have that much sway when it comes to foreign policy, and and she has tried to be a leader in the anti-Trump, and maybe this is a piece of that, but the idea here that at when... Um, when this administration is making great efforts or at least trying to make progress on the peace process, that you would go ahead and throw that out there to great applause to the far left of your party, to the far left of the electorate and to the political world is surprising. It's surprising and shocking. And I think that it's something that people should take note of, particularly Democrats. I mean, we've talked about this. I want bipartisan support for Israel. I want Democrats to feel, I don't want Israel to be a wedge issue. But the one thing is for sure that the far left and which has in many cases become the activist wing of the Democratic Party is not pro-Israel. And there used to be a consensus in the Democratic Party with regard to Israel, and perhaps it's an you know, overall vision of foreign policy, but they are making hard inroads. They go to these events. They go there. They try and pin politicians down on Israel issues and the, and the intersectionality and the like, and it's just a shocking statement to come to that. Additionally, she was considering walking back her support for anti-BDS legislation uh, over free speech concerns. And the interesting thing is that the speech issue is kind of this red herring, this cover that a lot of people throw out there that, well, boycotting Israel, a boycott is just free speech. A boycott is not free speech. A boycott is an economic war. It's a battle. It's to say that I won't do business with you because of who you are, uh, because of your business. If I were to say, I will not patronize a business because of the origin, I won't patronize this gas station because it's owned by people of a certain nationality. I won't patronize this 
uh, I won't go to, I won't buy something from this company and, and the like. That is not speech. That is actually promoting a specific action. And I don't want to get into the constitutionality of it, but the fact that she would already walk it back and that she would say, consider that she would consider her support, and she's a sponsor on this bill. So either she's misinformed, either she doesn't understand, either she just doesn't have a good staff, or she was just responding knee-jerk to the crowd. It's extraordinarily troubling what has gone on, what has what we've seen the shift from a U.S. senator, and usually U.S. senators are a lot more measured. I don't think we would see Chuck Schumer. I don't think we would see other elected officials, uh, particularly of the U.S. Senate, even Democrats around the country, make this kind of statement that puts so much distance between them and the pro-Israel community. And this is a senator who has benefited tremendously from pro-Israel PACs, from pro-Israel money. I know NORPAC has been a big supporter. There have been people in my neighborhood in the five towns who have supported Jill Brown significantly. Many of them dropped it over her support for the Iran deal, uh, where she did, which she did support. And it's just very disappointing. But this is much, this is far further than that. And I think people should call her office. People should go ahead and say to her and express their displeasure. Uh, I have called, and I think it's important for people to go out there and say to her that, you know what? Okay, fine. You made your statement. You talked about the vision for peace. But did you even express sympathy for those that were killed in a terrorist attack at the same time there in uh in uh, the same time there in Israel on that same weekend. And we all know out there that this, uh, the the security precautions, and these are precautions after Palestinian terrorists smuggled guns into the Temple Mount compound and shot Israeli soldiers, Druze, not even Jewish soldiers, Druze soldiers. Uh, they shot them and murdered them on the Temple Mount, uh, which, of course, is, of course, a desecration of, I mean, how can that not be a desecration of the holy place to go ahead and do that? But instead, the, secure, the, the metal detectors that are outside are considered that provocation. Number two, which actually is probably got a lot less coverage, but I think is every bit as significant to our listenership, is another era of controversy is brewing in this time in New Jersey, actually another one in New Jersey, just when you thought that the Aruv was settled law based on the Tenafly case, the Tenaf people of the community in Tenafly had to fight in court for years to put up an Aruv. Uh, the South Muncie Aruv, which net, which the border over there is in the, you know, goes into New Jersey into the town of Mawa, the South Muncie had put lechis, had put PVC poles, which are essentially uh, in, you know, not invisible, if you will. Uh, up on poles. They've done it with the permission of Orange and Rockland and the local utilities who own the poles. And they did it with the permission of the Mawa Police Department. In fact, they even paid for police protection from the town of Mawa. They went ahead and they did this in order to erect the Aruv and to extend the Aruv along certain streets. It's obviously much easier to use existing poles and existing wires in order to do that. And 
the town, there was this tremendous petition. Um, thousands of signatures came to go ahead and say to the town, we do not want the Arab police take it down. Then the town went ahead and sent a letter to the Arab to telling them to take it down. Apparently, some polls were vandalized. There was a big meeting this past week covered by my friend Sandy Eller uh, from Vuss's Nias, and she reported the hostility that had gone on at this meeting just in the ways that people talked about the fact that they essentially, the reason they don't want this Arab is to keep out Orthodox Jews. And that's kind of what has what has transpired there. Now, we've seen here, we saw a, a famous case that had gone on for several years in court in litigation in West Hampton Beach, uh, really specifically targeted at our community, at targeted at Orthodox Jews. We do not want you to move here. Therefore, we do not want an Arab. The thing is that this is a settled law. This is actually overt discrimination because two things. The town basically said... They had they get it was put up with permission. Then they enforced or selectively enforced a sign ordinance and saying that these PVC poles effectively were a sign. They were uh, giving because they indicate to Orthodox Jews or observant Jews, if you will, that you can carry in this area. And since they do that, they have essentially you know violate the sign ordinance, which of course is ridiculous because. There's no sign, and the courts actually have said specifically in the Tenafly case, the federal courts and the appeals court, which is controlling in this case, basically said that this is not a sign. Nobody can actually see what the sign is in this case, and it's not. But the town of Mawa seems under political pressure from people who are hostile, who are clearly hostile and want to express hostility and don't want Orthodox Jews moving into their area. And, you know, the funny thing is they talk about this as if it is, well, this is a Hasidic thing as opposed to just a Jewish thing and as if being anti-Hasidic is appropriate by being anti-Semitic of course of course that's that's bad I think actually discrimination against anybody and hopefully everybody would agree with that is is wrong but the funny thing here is or actually not funny at all but the the crazy thing here is the willingness of the town and the supervisor, the mayor willing to, to go ahead and do something which would be considered patently illegal to violate court decisions. And I don't know who his uh, legal counsel is, but to go ahead and violate these court decisions uh, that and to go ahead and garner political support. Why not just say to people, look, people, this is the United States of America. People are entitled to practice their religion. We're entitled to religious accommodation. That is the law. This is obviously an ongoing story. Uh, the team that f argued and that fought the West Hampton Arif case, led by Yehuda Buckwhites at while Gottschall and Mangie is doing, I believe this a pro bono, is involved in this. They have already sent letters. And this is an ongoing story which we are going to talk about because it is so important to our community Um and the fact, again, this was done the right way. It got government permission. It wasn't, nobody was doing anything underhanded. This was open. But yet, somehow, there is tremendous pushback and there is just tremendous uh, backlash against our community for just being who we are and wanting government to accommodate us. Okay, well, now that we've said that, there is just so much in a little bit of time. I just want to comment on the president went in front of the Boy Scouts, he's not going to talk about politics, talked about politics, and did not invite Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, who is, in fact, an Eagle Scout, who, bad, I, I, bad form, I don't know what to say, you know, it's like not inviting Spicer 
to the Pope and then basically trying to push him to quit. Didn't invite Rex Tillerson either, who was a national president of the Boy Scouts. It's just the funny way you play these games. These are your people. You appointed them. And it's and it's like as if they they said, I have to prove my loyalty every day to the president. And if there's one day that I don't, the these the cabinet, the the officials, everyone, they work for the people of the United States of America. And it's good to see our government if our government can function appropriately. Now, of course, as I said, the president is going to face tremendous backlash from the United States Senate. Uh, he, you know, they've thrown Ted Cruz's name around as if he was going to be the guy to replace Jeff Sessions. He said, no, I don't know. Ted Cruz would get confirmed under these circumstances. But, you know, the funny thing is that the president believes that he's more popular than the individual legislators. And perhaps he is in certain quarters. But he did talk about the fact that he dragged the this week about how he dragged Republicans over congressional Republicans over the finish line. He tweeted about that. He said that he got them elected. But it's actually not true. When the actual facts are that 90% of Republicans in in Congress outperformed the president in their districts. Um, there were obviously many 20-something districts, 20, I think 21, districts where Republicans won that Hillary Clinton won. So that means clearly they outperformed the president. Uh, the Ron Johnson, Pat Toomey, I mean, a number of U.S. senators, Marco Rubio, outperformed President Trump in their states in getting elected. Uh, so the truth is, I think Republicans want to stick together. The Republicans want to get an agenda done, but they also don't want to do it at their own political expense. And the idea that everything revolves around him is just not the way you get things done in Washington. That was something that the big mistake that Obama made. I think Obama disconnected himself from the Congress. He did not engage with Congress over and over. In fact, Trump probably has more engagement with Congress than Obama did. And everybody said that was a tremendous mistake on his part. Now, let's talk about the tweets for a second. As far as the tweeting of a executive, well, it's not even an executive order, just a ban on transgender members of the military. And this all stemmed from the idea that the military, the Pentagon should pay for transgender surgery and people didn't want that. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's something that they were looking at as far as a manpower issue. But the president just decided, okay, fine. That's, I don't want the issue. Let's move it off the plate. No transgender people. Well, what about the people who are already there? Well, we don't know. I mean, they, they, the amazing thing is the White House press secretary, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, goes in front of the press and doesn't have these answers. And they haven't even discussed it. They haven't even had discussion with the Pentagon. The secretary of defense was on vacation, supposedly, yesterday. It's just a little bit, it, it's a little bit keystone, don't you think? I mean, why should we have a situation where we're doing government by Twitter? And I understand Twitter is a way to communicate, and that's great, but I don't know that we would have a situ we should have a situation similar to the way even worse than the way the travel ban was rolled out where we have a situation that let's just shoot first and we'll pick up the pieces later and figure it out. It's just not it doesn't make it and but you know perhaps we just didn't want to be talking about Russia again last week. And that's what happened this past week um, with the hearings. I mean, Jared Kushner came before Congress. So it was closed-door hearing, uh, just to meet with investigators. They had questions. It's unclear what happened. We don't know. Paul Manafort refused to appear. Donald Trump Jr. refused to appear. Uh, the, the saga continues, and this is going to continue to go on. You know, the 
just the crazy thing about this is the lawyer, I mean, you could have easily vetted this lawyer who they met with, who was the supposed bearer of dirt on Hillary Clinton. Apparently, there were legal papers, that which anybody could have found, uh, in a civil suit by the U.S. attorney, uh, Preparara's office in the Southern District against this lawyer uh, in a money laundering case. And the truth is, if you were... If you were really careful about who you were meeting with and you think that these things are as a campaign, you wouldn't want that news that you're meeting with people who are involved potentially in criminal activity or activity that is inappropriate, kind of the same way when Jared Kushner during the transition met with a bank that was under sanction. Actually, he didn't meet, he sent an assistant to meet with a bank that was under sanctions, under U.S. sanctions. So these just are things that you kind of didn't want to do. The... And, you know, maybe let's, that's what it is. Let's just change the subject when it comes to the uh, to Russia. We'll just talk about transgender uh, Americans and keep them out of the military. The one thing I want to leave with, and this is like a general spin idea here, and it's not the spin of the week because there's just so much to talk about. I mean, the real spin of the week is Anthony Scaramucci's opening press conference where he doesn't just say, I'm loyal to the president. He just, I talks about, I love the president. I love the president. Uh, it's as if, as they keep saying, the only person that matters who's watching is the president himself, and you have to pledge love and loyalty to the president over and over. I've rarely seen a White House staffer continue to say, I love, love, love. I mean, that it was just, it was a little bit much, even for me, and, you know, I... I I, I do think that you have to actually like the people that you work for and have uh, and have a, a fondness for them. The one thing I do want to leave everybody with as far as a spin, but this is kind of a personal spin as we close up, is 28% of Republicans believe that President Trump won the popular vote in 2016, which I think is astounding. I mean, it doesn't matter whether he won the popular vote or not. He's still president. But the idea that we th that there are so many people out there that think that he won the popular vote still, and then probably believe that illegal aliens voted and the like, when there's no evidence of that, still 28% is that number. And I think that's the spin in people's mind that that should be the case. Anyway, thanks for joining us this week. We will see you next week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.